Welcome to the Deep Prince Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deep Prince Movies. We're a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Chloe Akuno. She is the director of the fantastic movie Watcher. If you follow the Instagram, you would have seen it was in our top 10 of last year. It's just had a UK release. Great movie set in Romania. It's about a serial killer that stalks a city and a young actress who just moved to town notices a mysterious stranger from across the street who is always watching her. It's giving me big De Palma vibes, big Polanski apartment trilogy, really unique, very original approach great debut so i was excited to talk to her this is me and chloe Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. What's your poster behind you? Oh, it's a Watcher poster, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) Amazing movie. Great work. Thank you. We put it on our favorite lists of last year, but it still counts. This is so cool. That's amazing. Thank you. I love hearing that. We have tough competition in 2022. Yeah, there were some bangers, but I was just coming off watching stacks of De Palma movies and Hitchcock and Polanski's Apartment Trilogy. So I was like, this is really filling the void of all those types of movies (laughs) that I was just obsessing over for three months and the end of last year. Oh, that's amazing to hear. Yeah, those are definitely the directors that I was uh, uh, referencing very heavily for this movie. So that's that's lovely to hear. (laughs) Yeah, no, your film is totally its own thing, but it was just great to see that type of movie still exists. It is. It's kind of unusual these days. You're right. I mean, it it was such a the sort of like slow burn Hitchcockian thriller. I mean, I guess actually like Parasite you know, changed the game and made it more popular again. But yeah, I think it, it, it had gone somewhat out of fashion for a few years, but these things are cyclical. So of I'm course. Sure yeah. What did you grow up watching? What were your directors and movies that really sparked something in you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was, uh, I, I was like a 90s kid, you know, I grew up in that era. And I think, you know, when you're a, a, a 12 year old to a teenager typically that's probably when your love of movies is like at its most sort of like new and passionate and everyone you watch really imprints upon you so I of course you know sort of worshipped at the altar of David Fincher Uh, I love the Coens I love Tarantino Um, but yeah I also was like a big fan like going back into the sort of well not that they didn't also make movies in the 90s but the guys who came up in the 70s like De Palma John Carpenter was a big one. Um, 
But at the same time, oh, Rid- Ridley Scott, like Alien, probably my favorite movie of all time. Um, also was a huge fan of Sofia Coppola. I know she doesn't do horror, but uh, certainly like Lost in Translation made its way into Watchers. So yeah, there, there, there were a lot of them uh, growing up. I think those were the big ones. I just had a meeting in Ridley Scott's office in London and I kind of I think I derailed the meeting a little bit by just going off on how amazing 90s Tony Scott was and just talking about man on fire and unstoppable and all the action movies and they were like you know Ridley's good too as well right and I was like yeah I know but fucking hell Lost Boy Scout (laughs) when you're a 12 year old boy that movie's insane Ridley gets a lot of plaudits. I think it's good for somebody to like say, hey, I love Tony Scott. Man, True Romance, one of my favorites. Yeah. Oh, good. I love seeing Quentin's world shot through that slick kind of Simpson Bruckheimer cocaine, (laughs) you know, Tony Scott vision that he so brought to it. That was. Yeah, it is fascinating to see. I, I always was actually like a huge sort of defender of the movie Domino. I haven't rewatched it in a while, so maybe it is terrible, but yeah. It is. I hate to say it. Me and my girlfriend went back for a bunch of Tony Scott's and I was, it, it, it's, but it is insane. It's one of those ones I put it in. I'm so grateful this batshit movie exists and things yes. like that got through the studio system. After Every so often I find those movies and I'm like, how? Who signed off on this? <laughs> How did this get a big theatrical release? How did this open on a Friday across the country? I love it. Different times. Totally different yeah. time. <laughs> How did you land on your lead? Am I saying her name, Micah? Am I saying her name right, Micah Monroe? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Micah. Um, I mean, I was a really big fan of hers. Uh, you know, I I loved her, obviously, and it follows. I loved her in The Guest. Um, I think she's one of these people who is very uh, known in the horror community, especially. Um, and I mean, genuinely, I I didn't really think she was a person we could get because we're such a small movie and uh, it was my first feature. So I wasn't a known um uh, known person in any way but uh we sent her the script and to my surprise and delight she responded to it and you know we had a zoom I I was already prepping the movie in Romania at the time and I think she was you know back in LA but um I just we immediately connected uh, on the story and and just on a personal level she's a, a really amazing person she's um she's lovely and and she has very sort of um you know, she she had a lot of interesting ideas about the character. She connected to it, like, on a personal level, both in the way that it was sort of about the experience of women sort of feeling dismissed. I think she could really connect to that. But also, you know, she'd had the experience of living abroad before in a country where she didn't speak the language. So we, we, we honestly just vibed. Um, and it became a relatively easy, easy thing. Uh, and casting usually isn't. So... Yeah, that's how that happens. <laughs> yep, the delicate tension in your movie where I want to talk about this because you're keeping it very grounded and never goes into full-on like psycho slasher mode. But there's always that balance of is she losing her mind? Is this, there's always a sense of tension because she's a- alien in the city. But there's always that balance of is this guy sinister? Mm-hmm. Is he just a weird, lonely guy? 
mm-hmm. and and then it just escalates. How was it kind of keeping it the tension up, but it also grounded? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, that was the that was the sort of key challenge um, from the script level all the way through into post production. Um, and I mean, a lot of it was sort of you know like like script narrative choices, making sure at any given moment she's getting you know her feelings and her reasons for feeling this are justified but at the same time you're laying groundwork for why other people could doubt her yeah uh, why she could doubt herself uh you know certainly in the way we shot it um we tried to make sure that in the beginning of the movie we're never seeing the watcher's face clearly enough to to identify him definitively as the person who's also watching her from the window. So it's sort of like the, could it be a coincidence? Could it be a different person? Uh, And also could this person following you just not even be following you? Is this sort of that feeling you get in the back of your neck, but it's not real. Um, But but the the trick was also balancing that with making you understand why, you know, she isn't just this hysterical woman, like her fears are there for a reason. And the experience she's having with this guy following her is genuinely scary. And you could understand why in her situation, she would be as freaked out as she is. Um, so yeah, that that really was the key challenge all the way through. And, and it was about, you know, narratively, visually, uh, in terms of our sound design and our score, how do we kind of ride that line and keep people on their toes um, and put you into her head where she's on the one hand, totally convinced because it's so frightening, but on the other hand, you know, the doubt is seeping in, especially when people around her begin to doubt her. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was the whole trick. And I think one of the testaments to her performance is she's so relatable and likable that you are backing her and you are on her side throughout the movie, which was really, really important. Also, I was wondering, how did you shoot between the two apartments? Your film is so stylistically great, but that can't have been easy. Oh my God, that was the hardest part of the movie. I'm so glad you asked about that. And honestly, it's even a little bit difficult to explain it, so I will do my best. But essentially, we wanted to find actual locations. We scouted for literally like four weeks looking for an apartment for Julia that was also across the way from an apartment for the watcher. I didn't even think about that. So must find a spectacular lush apartment with great aesthetics that on looks to another apartment that will sync up. That was on looks to another apartment that is a little scarier and also is controllable that has a window where he can be looking down upon her. It, we just, it didn't exist, or if it did, like, we never found it. So how we ultimately did it was her apartment is all a set. Our production designer built that apartment uh, in a studio. And then outside of her window, obviously it's a set. So half of the time it's blue screen. Um, and when it's blue screen, we are comping in a different building that we shot for the watchers building. Uh, So we went to this part of the city where there was a building that was, I think, going to be um, demolished. So we had total control over it and we could sort of, our production designer could redo some of the facade of it. The the trickiest thing is that if you think about it, like her, Julia's apartment is supposed to be on the third floor. So in order to get the proper height and perspective on this building, we had to build a very tall like platform just in a parking lot and shoot on top of it. 
And we had to like, it was really like genuinely terrifying because we were shooting on this windy night and it was this very like, to my eyes, rickety looking platform in which mm-hmm. we had to like, like a little like, um, like scissor lift up. And then we had to literally have this like climbing safety equipment so we didn't accidentally fall off and kill ourselves. So yeah, that was really, really hard. Uh, and and yeah, in the apartment, it is a mix of blue screen and a Roscoe soft drop translate, which is essentially a, a very fancy background. We just took photos of the watchers building and it was stitched together in a, a very large, um, yeah, essentially like canvas backdrop that you're seeing outside of the window of the set. So that's how we... Okay, that looks spectacular. Great work. Thank you. Thank you. How was it for you being your first movie? You're shooting in a foreign country. You're dealing with crazy logistical nightmares like that. How was this for you keeping it all together? It was really hard. Uh, I felt like there were a lot of moments when I was barely keeping it together. Uh, and that's always the feeling when you're directing, honestly, you're, you're always sort of like riding that edge of losing your mind um, because it's so difficult. And because the stakes are so high, like this movie was something I had got hired on five years before and it was my first feature. It felt like if I messed it up, I wouldn't be hireable again. So the, the personal emotional stakes could not be higher. And then making a movie is just, it's very physically strenuous. You're working incredibly long hours and, you know, you're working with other people for whom the stakes are also very high. And, you know, you're, it's like a bunch of creative people who haven't slept. So it, it it's just a very, honestly, it is very difficult. Um, and it was interesting because it did feel like in the course of making this movie about a woman who, who did always feel a little bit on the edge. I, I was yes. having like a <laughs> experience um which was good in some ways like I I could really hopefully channel that and bring it into what was going on screen but yeah it was really really hard um it was during COVID so there was that added difficulty um and it was just exhausting at the end of it you always feel a little bit lucky to have made it out alive to be honest or with your sanity intact and how did you find the amazingly named Bern Gorman (laughs) Well, I was a really big fan um, because I'd seen, you know, Byrne, he's he's such a good character actor. He's been working forever. You know, I'd seen him in Pacific Rim um, and in a few Del Toro movies, actually. Uh, He's also, I think, worked with Christopher Nolan. He's he's great. So when his name came up for the part, I was just, you know, really taken with the idea. I thought Byrne was great and kind of the same thing as Micah. I didn't think we'd necessarily be able to get him because when you're on this small of an indie movie, you're like, are the agents even going to send the script to their client? Sure. Um, um, but it, yeah, Byrne, Byrne read it and really liked it. We had the most amazing conversation about the character where he had all of these incredible ideas about the character's backstory and his history. And it was very sort of linked to Romania itself. And he just totally got it. So yeah, that was uh, that was very easy. And it was just about like like every other actor, getting him to Romania and and shooting before he had to go do his next thing. Yeah, again, another actor who totally elevated what could have been a typical creepy guy to something just so much more deep and so much more interesting. And then obviously he's got such an interesting face anyway, which is just wins for this type of movie 
Totally. Yeah. He really, it was funny. Like there's a scene on the train where, you know, Julia and the watcher kind of have a conversation for the first Great time. scene. Yes. It's very, very late in the movie. And um, we shot, we didn't exactly shoot chronologically, but they had, we had done a lot of scenes where Byrne is just following her through the streets prior to doing that scene. It was the first time I'd heard him open his mouth as his character and say something. So it was very like. Oh well, yeah. I didn't think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. And I, of course, like uh, Byrne had already brought so much to it just through his sort of his physical characterization of the watcher. And I knew he was fantastic, but it was honestly this huge question mark. I'm like, what is this guy going to sound like? What's Byrne going to do? I don't yeah. really know. And of course, as soon as they had that scene, it, it became my favorite scene in the movie. Just having these two very, very, very good actors um, across from each other in this pretty simple scene. Um it, it was uh it was kind of magical not to be cheesy but yeah he he killed it micah killed it um, that was a really it was a good day a hard did day. you know burns uncle is like a legendary bare knuckle boxer in the uk what? yeah google no. google <laughs> gorman gypsy king I don't know if you know of uh director shane meadows who made this is england he was going to make a yeah. crazy movie with Paddy Considine where he plays yeah like an illegal bare knuckle boxer fighting in streets clubs bars anywhere for money I think he even fought in a coal mine which is just incredible oh my god this is amazing I had no idea um undefeated as well yeah just some dark crazy British history for you there that's amazing I love that yeah he he looks like he he would be the crap out of anybody. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mubi. Mubi is a creator streaming platform for movie lovers. I've been a Mubi subscriber for years and I want to give you free recommendations from the Mubi UK platform. Okay, Souvenir Part 2 by Joanna Hogg. Really fantastic. The most accurate representation of going to film school and not always in a good way but man that was really fantastic makeup 2019 claire oakley i love this movie i saw it in the curzon when it first came out it's also in a caravan park and it's really sinister and spooky Kind of Lynn Ramsey doing a horror movie in a caravan park. And Funny Ha Ha by Andrew Bajowski. Basically the first Mumblecore movie. He was the originator. So do that. You can try Mubi for 30 days for free at Mubi.com slash deeper into movies. That's movie.com slash movies for a whole month of cinema for free. But obviously start with those for you that I just recommended. Okay, good. Uh. 
one of the funniest things when I got a screener for your movie from IFC, I was so stoked to watch it. I just heard Bryson Ellis on his podcast talking about how great it was. And then there were no freaking subtitles. And I was pissed. <laughs> and I was like, you know, dear IFC, as per my last year, what's with the subs? And then I went on a total Karen mode. And then I went on Reddit and someone had said, no, I saw it at festival. There are no subs deliberately. This is to make you feel alienated and much more inside Julia's head. So yeah. tell me about that decision because it was fantastic. But have you had screenings where people are like, what the hell? Where's that? Because there's a lot of <laughs> Romanian dialogue in the movie and it does end up totally working but there is a lot work. that's so funny I love that I'm sure I'm positive you're not the first person to have had that happen uh nor will you be the last yeah it was um so it was a it was one of those things where when I wrote the version of the script that took place in Romania I, I like from the beginning I said I think you know, if we are as dedicated to her point of view as I would like to be, we can't really have subtitles in this movie because she can't understand what's being said. Um, and that is part of it's it's challenging. Like it is genuinely challenging for any viewer to watch a movie where you're you're totally left in the dark for that much dialogue. Um, I was really happy when the producers really embraced that choice. Um but it is controversial and it is alienating for a lot of people. It's intentional, but for some people like like in our first test screening i think it, it it's a very interesting split i would say that in that test screening 60% of the people specifically said they loved the fact that there were no subtitles and 40% of the people said they hated it and it just created this this remove for them that they couldn't really get past um and it's it's one of those choices where it's like we accept that for a certain portion of people this is going to be so alienating that we're going to lose them, but it, it still feels like the right choice. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a thing. <laughs> I, I do wonder at some point if they'll release a version where there are subtitles. Um, I would be in, in support of that. It's a totally different experience of the movie, um, but it would be interesting to see if it changes anyone's viewing of it. I like the way it is because you. Just relate more and more to Julia, and, and you do feel that you're an alien and an outsider in this city yes. as well. Once you get it, I think pretty much once she said, What is he saying? You click, Okay, when I think when, when they're in the taxi at the beginning, yeah, then, then you're in her head and space as well. Yeah, I was wondering when you're shooting the scenes of her walking on the street. Am I right? It's almost, you've almost put the background a little bit out of focus. It almost yeah. feels like you're totally zooming on her, which was a great choice. I was running how you landed on that with your DOP. Yeah, I mean, me and um, Benjamin Kirk Nielsen, great uh, DP on this movie, He we like had a lot of conversations about, you know, how do we, of course, put the viewer, how do we photograph her so we're in her head? Um, and a lot of it, and also, you know, on a more, almost more practical level, how do we photograph the watcher following her? So we can never really clearly see his face. Um, so a lot of our decisions were about, yeah, that psychology and also that sort of practical reality. And that meant playing a lot with, uh, with focus and depth of field and making sure that there were moments where, you know, we had a, a shallow enough 
depth of field that we could have her in focus and everything behind her out of focus. Um, and yeah, that becomes a choice about, about lensing and, you know, Benji was so brilliant. I think he, he made all the right choices, but it really was sort of, that was part of the initial discussion about her emotional point of view. How do we photograph it? And, and yeah, it's a very, it's a very powerful trick and tool for a filmmaker, um, you know, to shoot on a longer focal length and only have one thing in the frame in focus, the rest out of focus. It's a very, very powerful tool for suspense filmmaking. Um, cause you can literally have this sort of shadowy figure in the background, uh, or in the case of her walking down the street, the entire street just feels like it's, it's all these sort of shadowy figures behind her and you can't quite zero in on anyone. Uh, so, yeah. And what movies did you show the cast? Was there any movies you screened or pulled reference from other than the obvious like De Palma that we spoke about? Yeah, I mean, there were there were a lot. I don't think I actually had time to screen movies for the cast necessarily, but we we talked about references. You know, I had a lot of mood boards and lookbooks that I shared with them. Um, and it, honestly, you did call out a lot of them. I mean, a lot of it was Polanski's Apartment Trilogy, Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant, Repulsion were all really big references. Um, we looked a lot at some Fincher movies, uh, Seven and Gone Girl. Um, there was a, a Japanese um, movie, animated movie by Satoshi Kon called Perfect Blue that actually ended up being quite influential. Um, it's a wonderful movie. It's about a Japanese pop star who's being um, stalked by a deranged fan. It's great. Um, and, you know, like I said, Lost in Translation actually ended up being. Uh, That's a great show. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, so there were a lot of them. I think I think Don't Look Now was something that the uh, I told the actors they could watch as well. They but I left them a bit to their own devices. I wish we had time to do like real screenings, but it was more like we talked about the characters. I told them about references. I sort of allowed them to go off and seek out what they needed for their for their character if they wanted it. Um, so yeah. On my podcast, I was asked, "Did you screen the film for any cast?" And all the indie directors like, "No, I didn't have time." And I'm only getting the memory of screening things when I was watching goddamn Paul Thomas Anderson, who calls everyone around to a screening room when he's making Magnolia. And, you know, he's just got like endless money, endless time just to drag everyone in and all his friends and hang out. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that this isn't the glory days of the early indies anymore. Oh, oh is- yeah. No, the, the glory days of just having like endless time. He probably had like 60 days to shoot that movie or something crazy, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately, don't really have the time to do that anymore, but I love it as a concept. I'd love to do that in, in some hypothetical future where we have more time. Yeah. You shot in six weeks, right? We shot it in 29 days. Um, and we had alternate wow. six, five day weeks. I can't remember how long, I think it ended up being five weeks. And finally, what's next? Do you have a project lined up? Do you have a dream project? I do. Yeah. So there's one that I'm so excited about. I'm actually in a writer's room for it right now with like truly the most amazing, like horror Avengers style superheroes, Um, just people whose work I really, really admire. Uh, And we're working on this really cool project. And I'm really, really annoyed that I can't actually talk about it yet. but it will break at some point and that's going to be really cool. Uh, the other one is a 
I have like a mermaid horror movie that I wrote years ago that I've always loved. Um, and I'm developing that one with the watcher producers. Um, so that's another one that could be really, really cool. That sounds crazy. I'm half of that. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it'll be, uh, it'll be an interesting. Flash meets something. Totally. Yeah. Great. Okay. Flash meets. Let the right one in. <laughs> Sold. Take my money. Yes. <laughs> That's a good note to end on. We only have 20 minutes, so I've got, I'm going to be respectful of your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. That's amazing. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Have Take a good care, one. Take care, buddy. You too. Bye. Bye. Boom. That is me and Chloe. Go rant. Watcher. Watcher. Not the Watcher and not the Watcher for TV series. The movie Watcher. Set in Romania. It's fantastic. Trust us on this. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you to Joshua Eustace, aka Telephone Tel Aviv, and to you guys for listening. We'll speak soon.